We've been seeing in our studies in Hebrews 11 that faith is a foundational grace and that it lays hold on what is unseen. It rests on God's word alone. We've seen too that faith is pleasing to God because it credits him. It reckons on him and on his faithfulness. And ultimately, it gives the glory to God for everything and especially for salvation. And in this section, uh, verses 8 to 16, I want to look particularly at this theme, that faith begets hope. Uh, Verses 12 and 13, sorry, 11 and 12, uh, to do with Sarah, we will, God willing, look at the next study in Hebrews 11. Um, But in the rest of this passage, our theme is faith begets hope. And hope, you may remember, is a word that comes right at the beginning of this chapter. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope is very closely allied to faith, although it's not exactly the same as faith. Hope is a confident expectation that springs out of faith. And for example, in verse 13, we see how faith uh, gives rise to hope as the author here uh, summarizes something of what he is saying in these words. These all died in faith, not having seen the promise, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. There's faith here, obviously at the root, but there's something more. They not only believe, but they are assured of them and they embrace them and they confess that they're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Hope grows out of faith. If we turn back to Genesis chapter 12 and to that call of Abraham when he went out to the place which he should receive as an inheritance, we see in the first four verses, first three verses of Genesis 12, that Abraham's faith was challenged, we might say. He was asked by God to believe in certain things, uh, that he will be given a land, and that land as yet God hasn't showed him exactly where it is or what it is, that he would be made a great nation, that he would have a seed, therefore, that there would be a people coming from him, because I will make you a great nation presupposes that, and that also that seed, that nation, will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. There are many, many promises actually wrapped up in this call of Abraham. And he's asked to believe this, and to express that belief in getting out of the Ur of the Chaldees, leaving his father's house, leaving the land. And remember, these ancient men were very uh, rooted in in the very area, the, the territory in which they were built up. All their traditions, their religion and so on was very much bound up with the area, the terrain in which they were in. But he was to leave that and to go forth. Now, how much Abraham understood at the time of these promises, of course, we cannot know. 
But we do know by his obedience that he believed that God would make good on his words. And even though probably he understood little at the time, he set off in confidence that God would do what he had said. But I think we can see in the experience of Abraham how faith gave rise to hope in the sense that Genesis 12 goes on to tell us that when he came to the land of Canaan, uh, having stopped for a while um, at Haran, uh, verse 4, when he came to the land of Canaan, he discovered, uh, having traversed right through the land, that the Canaanites were in the land. But nonetheless, he built an altar to the Lord uh, at the place called Moreh, where there was a shrine, a Canaanite shrine, and he sacrificed to the Lord. And we can see how straight away, in a sense, his, his faith would be developing because the land is there, but it's occupied by the Canaanites. And what do we find him doing? Well, we read that he, as the writer to the Hebrews says, he dwells in tents as though he was still in a foreign country. It seems that something had matured and developed in the thinking of Abraham that now no longer is he thinking of just coming in and possessing a nation and possessing a land as perhaps other kings and rulers and chieftains would have been doing at that time, coming in, uh, invading maybe militarily or economically, uh, occupying and taking it over. He doesn't do that. Instead, he continues in the land, but he dwells in a tent or in tents with his household and all his servants, as though it was still a foreign land. And by the time of his death and the death of his wife, Sarai, we read as to what he did actually possess in terms of real land possession. In Genesis chapter 23, we find him possessing a plot for the burial of his wife, Sarah. Genesis 23, verses 18 and 19. Or verse 17 so the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. And we can turn to Genesis chapter 25 and verses 9 and 10 and we read that Abraham himself was buried in exactly the same place by his sons. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, 
There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. Now clearly from the description it was a big field and it had a cave in it and it had trees. But relative to the land it was just a small parcel of land. In other words, Abraham in his time in Canaan, he and his family, he and his sons Isaac and Ishmael had lived as though they were nomads. They had lived like nomadic tribesmen, moving around the land, grazing and so on, their animals, but never building a city. They dwelled in tents. And what we have to say here is that faith had, must have developed and matured because we read in verse 10 of Hebrews 11, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He hasn't stopped believing the promise of God that he will, he or his descendants will have a land, but now his faith is matured into something such much stronger. It's developed into something much stronger, into a certain expectation that something bigger and better will come to him or at least to his people to his seed and we're told what that is it's a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God and uh, the writer goes on to elaborate on this theme in verses 14 and following he says those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out they would have had opportunity to return but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The promise of a, a physical land in this world has become a greater, more developed hope of heaven itself. And of the same dwelling place that the writer describes in chapter 12 and verses 22 and 23 as being the place where all Christian believers go. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. This is what we've come to in principle, spiritually now, but this is what we will come to in a far greater sense when by grace we get to heaven. And so faith has produced hope in Abraham and faith produces hope, as this passage makes clear, in everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he goes on to say, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, being assured of them, embracing them, and so on. And it reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 concerning the three chief graces. Now to speak like that makes one think, am I being a Catholic to speak, a Roman Catholic to speak like that? No. The New Testament does tell us that there are three real, sorry, three main graces in chapter 13. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, 
But the greatest of these is love. Hope is one of these three chief graces that the Apostle Paul singles out as being so worthy of emulating and and having. But the one that is often forgotten about is hope. Hope, like love, is not a foundational grace. Like love, it springs out of saving faith. It flows from the foundation of faith and becomes an evidence of faith. So he can say, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I believe that is the doctrine which this particular passage is teaching us, and I'd like to try and draw some lessons from it, some practical lessons. The first is this, that hope is a grace that grows in the Christian believer, as it does here with Abraham. We can imagine that when he first heard that call from God, get out of this country, leave your people, leave the land, go to the place that I will show you, he didn't know where exactly God would take him to as he followed around the fertile crescent. But as time went on, even perhaps after he arrived there in Canaan, then his faith developed into this confident expectation of the future. In other words, it's not all there experientially at the start. And surely, if you are a Christian this evening, you will agree with this. When you are first called to Christ, when you first come to believe in Christ, what are you conscious of? You're so conscious of forgiveness. You're so conscious of the wonder of being in fellowship with God. Your mind isn't yet on all the blessings that are before you and on the final goal, perhaps, of heaven. I'm not saying this is the case always, but by and large, it's the the blessing of forgiveness and justification and such like that we are particularly conscious of. We're conscious that we're now in fellowship with God And all the implications of the Christian faith and all the expectation and blessing is yet to grow upon us. This is the same teaching that Paul gives in Romans chapter 5. Notice how he describes hope in this passage at the beginning of Romans 5. He's looking at hope from a different perspective here, but it's the same teaching. Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. These few verses are saying an awful lot. But one thing that they're clearly saying is this. Hope is the end product of a train of, of Christian experience. Tribulation producing perseverance. Perseverance producing character. Character producing hope. Not a a sort of doubtful hope, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but a, a confident expectation which is never disappointed because God's love comes to meet it. 
God's love answers to it and is poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And all the blessed providences and the experience of God's kindness, forgiveness and faithfulness to you are all helping this wonderful grace hope to mature in your experience. And the wonder at sins forgiven turns into something else or it moves to something else, to a confident expectation that he who has forgiven you, he who has loved you, has something wonderful ahead for you. Heaven itself. And so we can see how Abraham, when he obeyed God and went out not knowing where he was going, could get to that point where he died in faith and having, not having received the promises in a literal sense, but having seen them afar off and had embraced them. In other words, hope is something that grows and develops and requires perseverance, which is the point the writer is making to these Christians who are discouraged and not wanting to persevere. And he's saying, you must persevere because this is where, this is what it's all about. God, you must remember Abraham, he didn't have it all at the start. God had something far, far better for him than just a territory occupied by the Canaanites, but he didn't have it all there. At the start, he was patient and persevering. In fact, so patient and persevering that it was really through his seed that all these things came into fruition. So hope grows. And Isaac and Jacob, we're told, relied in the same way Heirs with him of the same promises. Genesis 26, 28, you can read it for yourself. God repeats the same promises of a land and of a seed and of a blessing. So that's the first thing. Hope grows. Secondly, like faith, hope reckons on God's. It grows because it's very similar to faith and, and it reckons on God's faithfulness. In Hebrews 6, this aspect is particularly um, explained in Hebrews 6 and verses 18 and 19, or 17 through to 19, in another context. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. He's saying, look, there are two things which we reckon on. One is that God himself doesn't change his mind, it, that it's impossible for him to lie uh, there's the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, of his plans, of his will. And the second thing he says is that we can rely on his promise, on his oath. In other words, hope is reckoning in this context of Hebrews 6 on God and on his faithfulness and on his word. Because that's what hope does. And so Abraham 
He reckoned on God's faithfulness as he left Ur of the Chaldees. He reckoned on God's faithfulness as he arrived there to that anticlimax in Canaan to see the Canaanites still in the land with their idolatrous shrine at Moray, to see them worshipping uh, trees and, and, to, and involved in all the immoral practices of Canaanite religion. As he got to that anticlimax, he still reckoned on God. And because he reckoned on God, he went and he built altars in the land. But he rec- his reckoning was growing and increasing, and so he, he dwelt in a tent. And what he was really reckoning on was that God was going to give him something far, far better than the land. He was content to be a stranger. He was content to be a pilgrim. And a lack of Christian hope is a bad sign because it tells us that we're not reckoning on God's faithfulness. It was a very bad sign, he's saying. It is a very bad sign, you Hebrews, if you decide to go back. Because as you think of these heroes of old, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But they had something else swallowing up their thoughts, driving their ambitions. It was a better country, a heavenly country. Because they were reckoning on God's. Are you reckoning on God? What do you hope for? If you are a Christian, a true Christian, you've got a wonderful basis from which to work from. It's this. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You're justified by faith in Christ, by faith alone. He's done the work of salvation and redemption. You have the Spirit of God in you. And now reckoning on that and and believing that baseline, so to speak, you can look forward to something even better because it's the same God who is at work in you and through you. And so Romans chapter 8 then goes on to say, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. What he's saying in Romans 8 is this. In our souls, in our spirits, we've been saved. We've been justified. And now working from that, we know that God is going to save our bodies. And that's the expectation we have. That's the assurance we have. Is that your hope? That's the Christian hope, you know. The Christian hope, much as we long for revival and we do long to see this whole world turn to Christ, that is not the, 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 the acme of the Christian hope. The acme of the Christian hope is that we will be resurrected, that we'll have a body like Christ, that when he returns, we shall be like him. That the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the Christian hope. That swallows up every other hope that we might have for the gospel, for ourselves, for anything. 
Because it's this great hope which most glorifies Christ when he comes in the clouds and glory and with his holy angels. When he comes to receive his elect church, when he comes to be glorified and admired in his saints. And when we with transformed bodies like to his glorious body, it'll all be to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is our great hope. And we have that expectation because saving faith has reckoned on God's faithfulness. So firstly, hope grows. Secondly, hope uh, reckons. Thirdly, hope testifies. Testifies. Because you see, as Abraham or Abram dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, he was saying something practically. There was a public dimension to what he and his fellow patriarch Sarah and his servants and his household were doing. There was a, a public dimension. They were testifying something to the Canaanites. They were testifying because of the altar building, and no doubt because of what he said, his witness, that this land would one day be God's land. But they were also testifying that they were not Canaanites, that they didn't want their idolatrous practices, that they weren't going to live the Canaanite lifestyle in permanent cities and towns. And we think of the great cities of the world today. We think of how prestigious and pleasant they are, earthquake-proof, efficient, energy-efficient, and all the rest of it. And what do they bear witness to? They bear witness to the glory of man. They bear witness to the fact that man is trying to build a Babel in this world. So often, I'm not denigrating good architecture, don't get me wrong, but what I am saying is that the spirit so often in which these things are built and, uh, and uh, presented are so often glorifying to man. And I'm not going to name names, but you can think of a few cities around the world where man is obviously being glorified. And what goes on in the cities is equivalent to Canaanite idolatry and immorality. But the patriarchs, you see, were testified that they were far more interested in what God was building than what man had built. And their practical action of living in tents was bearing witness to the Lord at that time and in that context. They were prepared to be treated as strangers and pilgrims. They were like pilgrims in Vanity Fair. They made it absolutely clear that they didn't want the goods that were on offer. And for that, they, they, yes, they were persecuted. They were mocked and ridiculed. But hope testifies because it says, I've got something better. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. You know, there's always that element of wonderful hope in the Christian life that, that does testify. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount concerning <clears throat> the meek? Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
because they don't strive and, and quarrel and argue and get all het up for the prizes and the goals of this world, because they're prepared to be submissive and humble, they're testifying that actually we're waiting for something far better. They're delighting themselves in the Lord because they know he shall give them the desires of their hearts. They're trusting in the Lord and doing good because they know that ultimately they will dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. They know that evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. There is a testimony. Christian hope is a tremendous testimony to people. Let us hope and pray they see it in us. And then finally, hope embraces. Hope embraces. We're looking at that word in the morning concerning Christ embracing his father's will for him of uh, taking the cross and dying for us there and uh, being resurrected, being buried and then resurrected for us and that uh, that leaves us with um, following Christ and, and, and Jesus Christ and him crucified as something we should embrace in our lives. And we find the same word here in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What does that word embrace here tell us of? It tells us that hope is not just something formal. Thank God for creeds. But it's not just because it's in the Christian creed that we believe in the embracing of heaven, uh, the achievement of heaven. We believe it because our heart embraces the promises of God. This is speaking to us of communion with God. John Owen, the Puritan author, speaks here of the heart cleaving to the promises here with love delight and complacency and by complacency he means pleasure with love cleaving with love delight and complacency hope embraces hope is delighted with what God has for us we need to cultivate that don't we brothers and sisters we really need to cultivate that in order that our faith love and hope may shine for the glory of God. God helping us, let us be about that.